Hello, and welcome to ADHD Love Parent Talk, episode 30. Don't give consequences in the moment, okay? Take a step back, try to think, what about the brain difference is affecting this moment? And then go back and emphasize, wow, that must have been really hard when your brother took your toy. And next time, maybe if they take your toy and you're really upset about it, you can come and tell mom, what do you think would be something else that you could do? And those kind of conversations where you're kind of partnering with them and brainstorming, and that way they feel like they're a part of the solution and hopefully we'll use that solution next time. Hello, and welcome to the ADHD Love Parent Talk podcast. If you felt like you have been walking your path alone as an adult with ADHD or as a parent with children with ADHD, you are finally home. I interview parents and professionals, including doctors, coaches, educators, and so much more so you can not only learn more information about ADHD, I also want you to have tools that you can put in your toolbox as you are going through your journey. Hey, my ADHD family, welcome to another episode of ADHD Love Parent Talk, where we talk about all things ADHD. Today, I have my guest, Aubrey, and we are actually going to get into something a little bit different. We are going to talk about FASD, which is fetal alcohol syndrome, and we're going to discuss that, talk about the ins and outs of FASD, and then we're also going to discuss how it compares or differs from ADHD. So, Aubrey, welcome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, no. Thank you for having me. This is fun. (laughs) Yeah. So, I'm excited for you to talk about this whole topic. So, first of all, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Tell them about your background. Yes. So, I started parenting almost five years ago through foster parenting. My husband and I got licensed with the intention of parenting kids and sending them back home. And so we've had a lot of kids coming through our house. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about how challenging it can be to be a foster parent. And a lot of that's the system. The system is very broken. And then there's other aspects of it that are parenting kids from trauma. And um, it's not the kid's fault, but we've got to learn what we've got to learn. And as time went on, I started realizing that there was something else, something else that we as foster parents were struggling with. And so once I realized what that something else was, then I started training people on how to identify it and advocating at the federal, state, and local level to try to make some systemic changes. Oh, nice. And tell us a little bit about Change Starts Here Collab. So you built this platform. So tell us what's the goal of this? Who is the audience? Yeah, it's a great question. So I started the collaborative at the beginning of November of 2020. And I did it because uh, as I was growing and educating more people, I realized like I'm not the smartest person in the room. There's a lot of other people who have a lot of great things to contribute to the conversation. And so often brain-based disabilities are siphoned off. So autism crowd sticks together and ADHD crowd sticks together and the interventions, the accommodations often work for all of our kids. I mean, each kid is unique. So like why we're not, we should share, we should work together. And so I started the Change Starts Here Collaborative in order to make that effort, both working with all forms of neurodiversity, um, any brain-based disability, including mental health, and then also working with um, other people and not just me. So I have other collaborators that are on the team together and we put out lots of resources, including um, mini courses. So courses you can watch in like 10 or 15 minutes, something quick um, to get just that little segment. And then, you know, a big hour of information because I feel like that was what helped me through some tough times was training. It's like centers me as a parent, like you're in the middle of it and you're like, what is happening? And then you're like, oh, wait, I understand the brain a little bit better now and I can be a more empathetic parent. So. Yeah, that's beautiful. So how can people 
contribute to it? And mm -hmm. then also, how can people get access to it? Yeah, great question. So we're on all platforms as at the CSH Collab, and then also our website is thecshcollab.com. And there we have resources, we have information about our courses. We do guest bloggers, and I also have information on the website about if you want to be a collaborator or learn more about that, that's on a page in and of itself. Um, we're always looking at growing our circle of who is informing it, both with individuals who are neurodiverse, parents of those kids, and making sure that everybody is kind of on the same page as far as the stories we want to tell. Nice, okay. So let's dig into FASD. So can you tell the audience what is FASD and then how does it come about? Yes, so FASD is the most common form of developmental disabilities and it doesn't feel like that and some of the numbers don't match that because we have old statistics. Mm -hmm. But fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is a spectrum term or is an umbrella term for several different diagnoses including fetal alcohol syndrome and it encompasses all of the effects of prenatal alcohol exposure. And kind of historically we've been told this narrative that FAS, which is the, the diagnosis that's been around since the 70s, We've known that alcohol is a teratogen or it crosses the placental barrier for hundreds of years, but we just had the diagnosis in the 70s, and that diagnosis was based on very extreme cases. Okay. So kids who had different facial features, which in reality only affect 10 to 15% of kids. Kids who had very low IQs, which 70% of individuals have IQs over 70, and the IQ range is 20 to 120, and my IQ is not 120, so kids who were very small, and that's definitely not always the case as well. And so in our head, we picture, oh, if a child was prenatally exposed to alcohol, it was a lot and it made a huge difference. And what we're finding scientifically is that it can be very early in pregnancy. It doesn't have to be a ton. It can be social drinking before a woman even knows she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. And then that can have um, lifelong effects. And so in my realm working as a foster parent, I'm often differentiating between the effects of drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. And alcohol is by far more dangerous to a fetus than drugs, which is not the narrative we're being told, right? But alcohol's effects are permanent, although of course we do interventions and accommodations and therapies and all that stuff. Whereas the effects of drugs, oftentimes we're seeing kids who are aging out of their delays. And so by age like four, they're caught up with their peers. There are some kids who persist and we suspect that a lot of that is due to alcohol. So trying to break down some of the myths, it doesn't you know, require a lot of alcohol. These kids don't necessarily look different. They don't talk differently. Like you wouldn't meet them and be like, hmm, something going on here, right? Yeah. They're sweet and kind and empathetic and awesome, and but also they need extra support. So it's a little bit hard to pinpoint. Mm. So how does a parent know when to stay away from it? Because sometimes you don't find out about pregnancy until it's too late. So yeah. how do you avoid something like this? It's an excellent question. And one of the reasons why I'm super against using the term, this is 100% preventable disability, because it's not. Until we have figured out a way for like a woman to get like an alert on her forehead the second that something happens, like it's just totally impossible at this point. So our birth control is not effective enough. Our you know pregnancy tests are not effective enough. And so a few years back, the CDC put out that any woman of childbearing age should not <laughs> drink. And it was not a popular statement that they made. <laughs> Let me <Right>. tell you. <laughs> 
but that was the reason. The reason was because the science is coming out on FASD. So I am a, a huge believer that we should not have any shame or stigma there. I think there are three reasons why a pregnancy might be alcohol exposed and none of them are because the woman is trying to harm her child. One, she didn't know she was pregnant because you don't know until four to six weeks and 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. Two, her doctor told her it was safe because many doctors still say that it is safe and healthy. And then three, because she had an alcohol use disorder and you can't just say stop drinking now that you're pregnant, just stop. Like you have to give people tools and support. And so I don't believe any woman drinks with the intention of harming her child. And I don't care how the FASD happened. I want to support the kid now that they're here. So that's my big focus. Got it. Makes sense. And so what are some similarities and differences between FASD and ADHD? So I was doing a little research before this and I was reading some studies and a lot of the studies are saying about 50% of kids with FASD have a comorbid diagnosis of ADHD. Mm -hmm. um, and I am surprised it's honestly that low because I've never met a kid that didn't have both. <laughs> but when I was meeting with some doctors a while back to discuss, like, we're not diagnosing FASD, there's nowhere to get diagnosed in my area, I live in Cincinnati. And she said, realistically, diagnoses are usually a cluster of symptoms. So when we see kids who are hyperactive, have a hard time focusing, um, a lot of the executive functioning deficits, we say, oh, that's ADHD because that is what ADHD is, right? But the causal factor of FASD is different. Mm -hmm. And so when I was reading the studies, it was talking about some of the different ways that it presents itself um, in that one study found that kids who have ADHD, when they were going to do, they had a task that they were giving all the kids. And the kids who had ADHD had a hard time getting focused on the task. But once they were there, they were relatively there. Mm -hmm. Kids who had FASD, okay, I got the task, that's fine. But every few seconds, we're off on something else. And so that was their differentiation. Um, there are a few other executive functioning symptoms that are a little bit different, like encoding can be a little bit different. Um, but all in all, I would say to the average parent, it's going to be real hard to tell. One of the differences that I don't necessarily see as present in um, either ADHD or autism is the memory differences. Mm -hmm. So with FASD, not always. Every kid's different, right? So any symptom I talk about could or could not be present with any given child. But with FASD, um, kids often have a hard time moving information from their long-term memory to their short-term memory and then back again, which is your working memory. That part has a really hard time. So like, yes, I learned that. And we've talked about it every day of second grade. But now you're asking me right now, I can't get that information for you. I don't know where it is. It's somewhere, but I can't get it for you right now. Um, so that can be very difficult. And a lot of times parents will tell their kids, you know, go do this, this, and this. And they can't remember any of the steps. And so parents are very frustrated. So the memory piece is a little bit different in how it presents itself in FASD versus ADHD. Okay. And so... As a foster mom, you have had children with FASD. What tips can you give parents who suspect their child have FASD and, or just what is that first step? Yeah, no, that, um, so I think that in foster care specifically, the assumption should be that that is what we're working with. Um, and I say that because it is much more, it's much easier to be empathetic for a kid that we are assuming has a brain-based disability than it is for a kid that we are assuming has a behavior issue. Dr. Ross Green says that kids would do well if they can. And so if we believe that to be true, and we believe that, yes, of course, there are going to be trauma triggers 
present. Um, but the other thing, we have to peel back the onion a little, a layer further and say, what about the brain is operating different? And I think that curiosity as a parent is going to help you get a lot further. So often we're like, well, they never listen to me. Mm. Okay. Do they never listen to you because they can't process what you're saying? They don't understand. You're using an idiom or a metaphor and they're very concrete thinkers. And so they can't understand what you're saying you give them too many tasks or you would just expect them to remember it because they do it every day because that's not going to happen. <laughs> so if that's the case, how can we put brain supports in place in order to help them? Very often kids are um, hardly ever going to be diagnosed. About 1% of our population is diagnosed. It's very mm -hmm. difficult to receive a diagnosis. And part of that is because so many kids are um, in foster care or adopted. So we don't have the confirmation of prenatal alcohol exposure. There are other ways to diagnose, but still very difficult. And then part of that, I have friends who are biological parents of kids with FASD. And part of it is just because doctors don't know a lot about it. And so in 2018, Dr. May out of UNC did a study that found it affected 5% of the population's actually conservative estimate. We're thinking it's more like 10, and maybe that's even conservative. But as we're realizing how much alcohol affects the fetus and how it changes things, then we're, we're seeing more of that. And we're actually, when I was reading the studies, it was talking about how ADHD, non-FASD ADHD was more present in alcohol-exposed pregnancies as well. Okay. And when you talk about 1%, you are talking about the foster care population, or you're just saying in general, there's only really 1% that's diagnosed? Yeah, in general, yes. Yeah, okay. so um, that study in 2018 studied thousands of kids in four different parts of the United States, and um, they just took first graders. It wasn't like, I'm going to go look for, like, the bad kids and pull them, right? It was just whoever's in this grade that we can get permission to do this study. And of the kids that screened positive for FASD, only 1% of them were previously diagnosed. Okay, all right, that makes sense. So what I really like what you said is you have the child come in. One of the, you know, one of your, um, your suggestions is to have the child come in, automatically think they don't, they're not bad kids and right. start putting strategies in place for them. And the strategies to your point really work across the board. Really? You yeah. know, it's yeah. really interesting because I remember uh, my son going to camp and they eventually used the strategies that I gave to him for the camp kids who were mostly neurotypical kids. Mm -hmm. And so they work really well. So to your yeah. point, just starting them on those strategies can make a huge difference. Yeah. And I, I kind of call it like a IEP for home because you're making all these accommodations. And so often we're like, okay, school, you need to give them extra time on their test and you need to make sure they have preferential seating and all these things, but we don't do the same thing at home. We're just like, listen, you need to get it together. So <laughs> for us to be able to recognize that at home and how we can change our interactions with our kids to, to kind of be more empathetic, super helpful. Yeah, I love that. So just tell us, what are some everyday strategies do you recommend that the parents can put in place for their child? You had just mentioned a couple, but what are some everyday strategies? Yeah, so in general, you're approaching every day like it's a new day. <laughs> um, because very often for our kids it is. And trying to be as... Um, as empathetic as you can be, which is difficult. I'm not saying this is easy. I was just listening to a podcast on FASD that was saying, even the people who know the most still struggle with this. And I was like, mm, yep. So it's very difficult to um, be empathetic. But some of my strategies are to modify the environment. If your kid is constantly getting into stuff and you're like, stop touching my whatever, then lock it up. Like I told my kid this the other day. I said, if you walk past and every time you walk past my chocolate bar, you licked it it'd be on me to put it away. <laughs> I can't be like, oh, for a while, right? <laughs> you know, 
So modifying the environment, and sometimes that involves baby monitors or cameras or something where we can help keep an eye on kids who are maybe able to be in a different room, but we still need to kind of be able to be like, okay, it's time to calm down now because we're getting really excited, um, those sorts of things. And then also modifying our expectations is huge. So making sure that we are coming at a child knowing that their brain is different and trying to be curious about that. And then also modifying how we approach the child and how we're parenting. So modeling works really well, mirroring works really well, warning a kid ahead of time what an expectation is. So not assuming, oh, they've been to the pool a million times. They know they're not supposed to run. No, tell them again. Those kinds of things are really beneficial for our kids. Yeah, and it's really interesting to listen to you because, again, it's very similar to what we do with our kids who have ADHD. But the other thing I want to add in there is, which I, I say quite a bit, is you got to be okay to be flexible and you have to be okay to do things differently than your friends or than oh, your parents yeah. did, right? Because yes. I never thought that I would actually change my way of doing things. I thought I would, you know, discipline my kids the same exact way. I would teach them in the same exact way. I would have the household in the same exact manner as my, my parents. And I do probably absolutely nothing the same, (laughs) (laughs) which which is okay because it works for them and they're turning out to be beautiful human beings, but it took me a while to be okay with that. And so, and that's what I tell parents, you have to be okay that you're not doing the same thing as your best friend is doing. So. Yeah, I hear a lot of that social pressure. Somebody asked me the other day, did I have a friend to help me with something? I'm like, I don't know any friends that don't have kids with disabilities, but <laughs> don't know. We're all struggling together. But I, you know, I definitely, I had um, lost some friends when I started foster parenting because they were like, what do you mean your kid can't handle this certain environment or you have to leave early or whatever? And they just weren't understanding. But it's more important that we are helping our kids feel successful. Um, One thing that popped in my head I want to make sure that we talk about is medication. So that's the other part of that study that I was reading earlier is medication. Obviously, when we see a kid that's hyperactive and impulsive and having a hard time focusing, we're like, okay, this is a lot. We need to help medicate you. And medication is not the first step. We want to try to do accommodations, but it's not the no step. Like, I'm not like, let's never do that. So we've got to balance it out. And I, my big judgment call is if the kid, like if I can see in their face that they feel out of control and they feel like I wish I could do better, like maybe we need medication to help like calm that down a little bit. With FASD, because the cause is different, Mm. um, kids can have both, but a lot of kids have just one. Then if you medicate it with ADHD medication, sometimes it can make kids aggressive. Because if they don't need that stimulant piece, and now you're like ramping them up, then they're like, ah, you know. So we just want to make sure that we're keeping an eye on that. If we give a kid ADHD medicine and they're reacting very negatively, maybe take a step back. Um, Sometimes um, there is an FASD medication algorithm. I'm not a doctor. Please do not take me as medical advice. But sometimes mood stabilizers can be a little bit more helpful. But the medication algorithm is super awesome because it gives you like, if you have these symptoms, these are some medicines to try in regards to FASD. So that can be super helpful. Oh, nice. Thanks for bringing that up. Okay. So what advice would you give them if their children are diagnosed with both FASD Mm -hmm. and ADHD? Like how do they handle that? So you had mentioned the medication piece and really watching that because like you said, they could possibly become aggressive due to the ADHD piece, but what else could you recommend for them? I think that ADHD is a good comorbid diagnosis 
for any kid with FASD because people know what ADHD is in some regard. And like, I'm starting from scratch when I talk to a professional about FASD. <laughs> so ADHD can help with the empathy working with other people. But I know like the cause of this is different. And I know the science that's going on in the brain is different. And so I advocate for medication differently accordingly. Um, but many of the accommodations do work similarly, right? So if you have a kid that has both, the big difference I find with FASD is the memory piece. And so recognizing that the memory is not going to be the same, things like confabulation, which is when anyone does this, any adult even does. If you witness a crime and somebody says, what happened to that crime? You're going to give them every detail, but your brain does not remember every detail, but your brain wants to remember every detail <laughs> these things. So with kids who have memory challenges, they get asked, did you put your backpack on the hook? And they say yes, because they remember doing that like sometime in the past and they're not lying, but their brain is just kind of tricking them. And so then you question that and they're very defensive because to them, it's the truth. And so having like awareness of that and empathy and not pushing that too hard can be super helpful with FASD. But regardless, your kid's going to move all the time and you just, you got to be okay with that. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And then, so just to close things up, first of all, is there anything that we haven't covered that you want to just share with the parents? I mean, anything that they should watch out for or any other strategies that they can put in place? Any other advice? Yes. Yeah, so a lot of times as neurodiverse individuals, we will see our kids struggle a lot and they may even escalate and we'll hear schools say stuff like behaviors. And I don't like to say behaviors. I like to say symptoms. And I like to point out that sometimes those symptoms are because we, as the adults in the child's life, are not doing a good job accommodating the child. Like, it's not on them. It's on us that we have to, like, change the environment better to match what they need. But if we do have an escalation, we know that we're not reasoning in the moment, right, when the kid's really upset. We're not giving consequences in the moment. If you've ever been say, go to your room, young lady, you're grounded. If that ever happened, tell me, please, did you think, oh, my gosh, I did a bad thing. I need to... I need to have consequences for that. No, you were like, screw them. So don't give consequences in the moment. Okay. Take a step back. Try to think what about the brain difference is affecting this moment and then go back and emphasize. So, wow, that must've been really hard when your brother took your toy. And um, next time, maybe if they take your toy and you're really upset about it, you can come and tell mom, what do you think would be something else that you could do? And those kind of conversations where you're kind of partnering with them and brainstorming and that way they feel like they're a part of the solution and hopefully we'll use that solution next time. And then we also do, at my house, we do an apology script. So our apologies are scripted out on how they're formatted because apologizing is actually a developmental milestone. So if we assume our kids know how to apologize, a lot of times I hear kids aren't empathetic and a lot of times it's a lack of social skills. So can we show them this is the things you should say and then eventually they're like, oh, I get it. And now you have spontaneous apologies that are effective, right? So teaching them those skills. Oh, that is awesome. I've never heard of an apology script. So that's really good. Yeah. Cool. So, yeah. So if there is any, or, or excuse me, are there any resources, uh, YouTube channels, books, or podcasts that you listen to that you can recommend for FASD? Yes. FASD is very lucky. We do have two amazing podcasts. We have one done by my friend Natalie that's FASD Hope. And then we have another one called the FASD Success Show by my friend Jeff Noble. And it's a great way to get like super meaty information that's also like, you know, it's free and you just listen to it while you're driving. If you drive, I don't drive very often anymore. <laughs> also, the hallmark book in our community is a book called Trying Differently Rather Than Harder, which is a book that does not look like super beautiful on the outside, but is super meaty on the inside. So big fan of that. 
Um, the only thing is I would keep it out away from your kids because there is a picture of two brains. I'm not a big fan of the brain pictures because it makes it look like it's just not positive. And it's also not super true. The brain physically doesn't look different. You can't get FASD diagnosed through genetic testing, blood work, or an MRI. Mm. So that's our book that's really good. And then on my YouTube channel, I'm working on building up the collaborative. So the, the Change Starts Your Collaborative has its own YouTube channel. And then on mine, I've, I have quite a bit on FASD specifically where I've saved other people's videos. I have my own videos that I've made. I have a 10-minute explanation in detail of all the symptoms of FASD and kind of how to identify it. Mm. Um, so if people are like, what are the symptoms? That would be a good chunky, it's a, it's a meaty video there. Okay, very good. And I'll make sure to put those in the comments below. So if they want to get a hold of you, have any more questions, can you remind the audience how they can get a hold of you? Yeah, so I have at the CSH Collab is, the, is our social media, but then I also have at Aubrey Page FASD. I'm on all the platforms there as well. And then you can also email me at Aubrey at the CSH Collab.com. Perfect. Thank you, Aubrey. This was great. I yes, actually learned something new, even the name of it. So that's really cool. So thank you. Yes. yes. All right, everyone, that closes another episode of ADHD Love Parent Talk. Have a wonderful and blessed day. Bye, Aubrey. Bye. Thank you for joining us on another episode of ADHD Love Parent Talk. If you enjoyed this episode, please do not forget to leave a review and join me as I talk with another exciting guest next week. Have a wonderful day.